You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Visa CEO Al Kelly joins Washington Post Live to discuss the explosive growth of e-commerce during the pandemic, the accelerated use of digital platforms for monetary transactions, and the new developments that are reshaping financial technology. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today on our continuing series, The Path Forward, I'm joined by Al Kelly, the chief executive of Visa. We're gonna be talking about the ways in which the pandemic has changed consumer financial behavior. And we're also gonna be talking about what this week is a very newsy topic, which is the future of money and cryptocurrency. Al, welcome to Washington Post Live. David, a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with the the pandemic. Uh, Obviously, uh, during this year plus, uh, consumers have needed cashless ways of of doing business. Uh, Tell us how your company has tried to adapt to that, how you've changed your business model and to the extent you've changed uh, your use of financial technologies to meet these new demands. Well, frankly, David, I don't know what would have happened other than uh, if not for what companies like Visa did prior to the pandemic to facilitate people being able to shop uh, during the pandemic. The reality is that, uh, you know, commerce has gone digital. And during the pandemic, we saw millions and millions of people from around the world shop for the first time online and, uh, and realized that is, it's relatively easy. It's not as threatening as they might've thought. And they learned that it's very, very difficult to stuff cash into a phone or an, a tablet or a uh, desktop uh, computer. So they realized they had to figure out how to pay uh, digitally. And I, I think that habit that's been formed is gonna be very sticky. And people shop for very basic things, lots of food uh, items, both whether they were shopping at a grocery store or ordering from a restaurant and and having it delivered or ordering from a restaurant and picking it up at uh, curbside. But the economies around the world continued to move because of the fact that money had gone digital. And the reality was during the pandemic, e-commerce and debit card spending never went negative. Uh, It was really face-to-face spending and credit card spending that were hit very hard, and we can talk more about why one versus the other, but the reality was that the debit card, which is really the beginning and the first product that in my mind started to digitize money, uh, really, really took off as people shopped online. I'm curious, Al, about other new uh, moves you're going to make to uh, stay ahead, to keep up with changing behavior simple terms, what, what's next in the cashless society that Visa has been so much a part of? Well, the first thing I would highlight, David, is that uh, about three or four years ago, we, we realized that our network was working in basically in one direction. People were buying goods and services, and uh, we were pulling money from bank accounts in order to pay for those goods and, and services. We have now have our network working in in both directions. And we're moving way beyond payments to get in the middle of any kind of movement of money. So today we can, for example, 
at the end of a, a shift, a Uber or a Lyft driver can immediately get uh, paid directly into their bank account. And that's facilitated by Visa pushing the money into their, their bank account. Somebody who rents their apartment or their home via Airbnb at the end of the stay can get paid by having the money go directly into their bank account. Someone who lives in a foreign country who's here working in the United States can, on a cross-border basis, send their money, send money home uh, to uh, their families. Insurance companies are increasingly sending claims directly into the bank accounts of people around the world. So this, this pivot into money movement and this pivot into having our network work in both directions are very big steps that we have taken in the last couple of years to further facilitate the digitization of money movement around the globe. So I've been struck in many of our conversations on this series about the pandemic now over the months by the ways in which this is in some ways, you'd say a tale of two cities that uh, uh, wealthy uh, Americans, people around the world uh, have been relatively unaffected while others have been severely affected. In, in terms of, of your business, I'm assuming that spending by uh, high income earners is, is perhaps less than it might normally be, but other folks probably want uh, an increase in their uh, credit card uh, debt limits. And I'm curious how you're, you're handling that, uh, in particular, the demands that you're seeing from the bottom for uh, greater leniency. So first of all, your hypothesis is correct. It is the higher end of the middle market and the affluent customer who spent less during the pandemic. They weren't going out to nice restaurants and ordering a bottle of wine. They weren't buying very many uh, discretionary items. They certainly weren't traveling and therefore their spending was down. The, the middle market on down uh, spending was actually quite robust and, and aided tremendously in countries like the United States, where there was a fair amount of government stimulus money that was pumped into the economy. I remember back on April 15th of 2020, the US had its very first distribution of stimulus money to 88, 88 million households for whom the IRS had access to their bank accounts, got money deposited uh, at the end of the day on April 15th. And when you looked at the spending of those people in the five to 10 days after April 15th, compared to the five or 10 days before April 15th, it was night and day. Uh, the, the spending was up uh, significantly. And this has been true of all three or four rounds of stimulus money that, uh, that we have uh, seen in the United States. The group that is most concerning to me in terms of the negative impact of this pandemic are small business owners. Small business owners around the United States and around the world really got hammered during the pandemic. And there was a huge difference between the small business owner who was omni-ready, uh, meaning that they had a good website and they were able to pivot from face-to-face -face sales to uh, a more digital way of, of selling than the, than the players that weren't ready. And frankly, the players that weren't ready, many of them have gone out of business. When we look, look at, at the last few months and we go back and compare it to the same period a year ago, in the United States, about 45% of small businesses that were transacting with us a year ago are not transacting with us now. 
which indicates that for the, in the majority of the cases, they've gone out of business. And if you walk the streets of uh, many big cities in the United States right now, unfortunately, you'll see many restaurants out of business, small shops out of, out of business. And I think that's a, a terrible issue for the economy and for communities. Small businesses are hugely important to uh, growing jobs in, in many, many markets, and they employ many, many people. And frankly, they help uh, create a, a, a real sense of community and completeness of a, of a Main Street USA or a Main Street anywhere in, in the world. And the fact that so many of them have suffered is uh, one of the, I think, great untold stories of the pandemic, David. That's, that's fascinating. I want to just ask whether there's anything that Visa can do as such an important financial inter intermediary to help these small businesses get back on their feet in terms of uh, extending uh, special credit op opportunities. Anything like that, that that could help that sector of the economy? We're hugely focused on it, David, uh, in a number of ways. Our foundation has made a $200 million commitment to help small and minority-owned firms around the world, particularly firms owned by women. Many, many small businesses, the majority around the world are owned by women, and often they don't have equal access to capital, which is a real problem. But we're also doing other things. We are teaching people how to get uh, digital, how to have a good website, how to have a good capability for delivery or curbside pickup or in-store pickup. We've had uh, street teams go to 65 cities in the United States and visit with small business owners and, and tell them how we can answer questions, tell them how they get uh, ready to operate in a, in a digital world. I think we visited almost 300,000 small businesses in the last number of months around the United States. And we have made a global commitment to help 50 million small businesses around the world become more digital over the next three years. So it is something that uh, both from a corporate purpose perspective, as well as from a business perspective, something that uh, we're leaning into in a big way. Before we leave the subject of the pandemic, I wanna ask you, uh, I'm told that you personally experienced this, uh, this disease. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about it and what that taught you in terms of, of how Visa uh, should respond in terms of dealing with its employees. And then finally, what your plans are in, in light of the, the Delta variant and our recent difficulties about getting your employees back uh, on site. Yeah, lots, lots to unpack there. Um, I realized how contagious it was. I was being extraordinarily careful. And uh, uh, on Thanksgiving weekend, a, a good friend came over to see me. Uh, I was with him for 10 minutes. Uh, we did not have masks on, and uh, he called me on Monday to tell me that he had uh, contact uh, contracted COVID. I wasn't feeling very good, and I got tested the next day and had it, and I was down and out for a good three weeks at least. Uh, luckily, uh, I'm fairly healthy, and my oxygen levels were good, but I would describe it as by far the worst flu uh, I ever had and uh, wouldn't wish it upon anybody and but i feel fortunate with the fact that you know 600 million people 600,000 people have died from this thing i feel you know quite fortunate and i certainly ran out to get the even though theoretically i had the antibodies i ran out and got the vaccine as, as soon as i could 
In terms of our company, from the beginning, David, our true north was the safety of our employees. Uh, most of them uh, started working from home mid-March of 2020. And today, most of them still remain home, about 90%. We have 125 offices in 80 countries around the world. And um, uh, the vast majority are what are at what we call level three, which means the office is open, but it is employee choice as to whether they want to come in right now. We do have some offices, uh, particularly in Asia. I think we have six offices in Asia right now where people are back somewhat, I don't want to say to normal, but to a new normal, uh, which I'll describe what I think that is in a second. And, uh, but for the most part, uh, it's employee choice. The reality is in the United States, we've been open for uh, seven or eight weeks. We're yet to hit double digits in terms of percentage of employees coming to the office. So, uh, you know, I think that's a combination of the summer months and et cetera. Our plan is to, uh, in October, uh, move to what we call level two, which means the office is open, but it's company uh, mandating what happens. And what, what I have uh, announced is that uh, we want all employees to come to the office on Mondays and Wednesdays so that we have two days of the week. We know that everybody's there and we don't have to go through some massive coordination of calendars to make sure everybody's there. And then we've asked by at a team level to pick a third day, which I certainly expect to either be Tuesday or Thursday. I don't expect very many people to be uh, in on Fridays. We'll have five or six, 7% of our employees whose jobs require them to be in the office five days a week. Um, and that, uh, that will continue. And we'll, we've always had three or 4% of our employees fully virtual because generally they're in a location where they're close to a client, but we don't have an office. So they, they work out of their home. Uh, you know, the big question now with the Delta variant is, uh, and, and by the way, some masking mandates come back. Uh, we've got about 20% of our global workforce and about 50% um, uh, of our U.S. workforce in California, in Northern California, where there, there's a uh, last Friday, a mask mandate went into place. So we're, you know, we're looking at all of this uh, and trying to determine what we might do. I saw a, a, a something come over the wire about an hour ago that Amazon just uh, decided to have everybody stay out until January. I don't think we'll do that. Uh, we've got a plan for people to come back. The big question is how we'll handle uh, unvaccinated people mixing with vaccinated people. And that's, uh, that's a tricky question that uh, we haven't really decided yet. I am uh, very much contemplating a vaccination mandate for visa and for people returning to the office, but I haven't yet made that decision. I'm still consulting with uh, medical people and our HR people, et cetera. So we'll, we'll decide that over the coming weeks. So obviously glad that you got through what sounds like a difficult uh, three weeks. Just a final question about, about the pandemic period. I'm curious, since you have such an unusual perspective on the global financial system, whether over this year there was ever a moment where the international payment system and ability to clear markets seemed so stressed to you that you were worried about about its systemic vulnerability. Did that ever happen in this uh, pandemic year? Not at all, not even close. Uh, there, you know, the, uh, our network, uh, we, we've invested $9 billion in the next last five years in our technology and our network. 
and so have you know other players have also in, invested. We can handle sixty-five thousand transactions a second on our network, and we've never come close to that. To give you a sense, last quarter we set a record. Uh, we had over six hundred million Visa transactions each day for the ninety-one days in the quarter, which was sixty million per day more than the prior quarter and 160 million per day more than the prior year in the same quarter. So our systems are, you know, knock on wood saying this, our systems are extremely resilient. Uh, they are primed for uh, high, high volume and high throughput, and we spend an exorbitant amount of money on, uh, on security. Uh, it's fascinating, it's part of the financial system that most people never see and I appreciate your describing it. Let's let's turn now to, to the future of what we call money. Uh, it's becoming a, a little more elastic uh, concept. Uh, this week, uh, the chairman of the SEC, Gary Gensler, said at a forum uh, that he thinks the SEC needs to begin regulating cryptocurrencies. Uh, I'll quote what he said at the Aspen Security Forum. We just don't have enough investor protection in crypto. Frankly, at this time, it's more like the Wild West. This asset class is rife with fraud, scams, and abuse in certain applications. So I want to ask, first of all, whether you think Gensler's right, that it's time for SEC monitoring enforcement actions in this space. I think it depends what he's talking about. And let me explain. When I think about crypto, I think of it in three categories, David. Number one is what I would call digital gold. And that the, the star of that show would be Bitcoin. I, I don't think Bitcoin is a payment vehicle. I think Bitcoin is an asset category, much like gold or silver or uh, corn or any other commodity. And and it isn't fiat-based, and it fluctuates dramatically, and many people are buying it, and I, I don't know that they know exactly how the market gets set and what it's going to mean for them downstream. The second category are stable coins. So there are probably 100 different stable coin providers around the world. These are, these are digital currencies that are fiat-based, so it's very clear what's, what uh, a, a, the currency is worth, and it can be easily converted into a, a fiat currency. And we're actually at Visa working with over 50 of these cryptocurrency providers, whereby we're creating utility for them because they have a wallet associated with their account. And we put a Visa card in those wallets, and they can convert at any time, the consumer can convert their digital currency, their crypto digital currency into a fiat currency and use it on use their visa card for any at any place of uh, that visa is accepted at 70 million places around the world and then the third category is central bank digital currencies which are in very different places all over the world china is probably in the lead many other countries are, are dabbling and researching etc so i think back to your question i think if the sec is looking to zone in on a place where there's more uncertainty and more analogy to some other commodity categories, I think it's in the first category I talked about of digital gold. Let me ask about uh, stable coin and, and, and drill down a little bit on your 
on your answer. I'm curious about Visa's decision to uh, use USD coin as the as the stable coin that I, I gather you primarily uh, associated with. Why is that a, a good idea for Visa beyond the, the point you mentioned about having the, the, the wallet? It, 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 what, what are the, the, the benefits that, that you get as a, as a company, as a financial inter intermediary from being part of that, that system? Well, uh, again, we, we don't pick winners and losers in this, in this game where we play a, a movement of, of funds or money around, around the world. We're in the very, very early part of the game of, of crypto. I don't know where it's going to go. Um, I, I can't. I can't predict that. But I, I think it possibly has merit in a number of places uh, for it to be a, a, a form of a value exchange for the purchase of goods and services, which is in essence what "quote unquote" money does today. And this would be part of the the future of uh, money. I, I think that if it takes off, there'll be many different uh, fiat currencies in which uh, we will play. Uh, we're experimenting with even settling in, uh, in uh, stable coin crypto uh, digital currencies uh, today. This, you know, on any given day, we process currencies in 160 different currencies and settle every evening in 29 different currencies around the world. So we'd have the capability to get involved in you know other fiat currencies or other denominate other stable coins denominated in other uh, fiat based uh, currencies. So we're at the stage now, and this is my philosophy about a number of things we could talk about in terms of the future of money. That we ought to lean into this. We don't know where it's going to go. We want to help shape it because we want to make sure that generally these things work better if it's a private pub public partnership. They generally work better when there's great security around it. But ultimately, we're gonna to have to see what the, you know, the various use cases are for cryptocurrencies and, and central bank digital currencies. And I, I think in some cases, there's countries that would benefit dramatically from something like a stablecoin cryptocurrency or central bank digital currencies. And there's other countries where, frankly, it's unclear whether it's necessary. One question, obviously, that uh, observers have is whether the move toward uh, cryptocurrencies and, and specifically central bank-linked uh, uh, cryptocurrencies will accelerate a move away from the dollar as the primary uh, reserve currency. What's your feeling about that? And, and would that have uh, negative consequences both for Visa and for the U.S. economy? You know, that's probably something I have very little control over uh, what would end up happening there. I, I, I think uh, I think it's unlikely that it really hurts the dollar. Uh, it is such an accepted uh, uh, basis in the monetary system around uh, around the globe. Uh, and I also think we're, we're a long ways away from uh, central bank digital currencies getting to the type of scale that would even uh, make that kind of discussion. A, uh, a a relevant dis discussion, you know, the Fed has said, or at least Randy Quarles at the Fed has said that you know for the the benefit of get going to a central bank dis digital currency has to outweigh the risk, and he has also said that uh, the reality is there ought to be a, a really good use case in order to justify the investment, and I think in countries where um, uh, 
that are heavily digital, heavily, heavily liquid, and, are, and it's easy to move money around, are less likely candidates to have good use cases for central bank digital currencies. Whereas emerging markets, where uh, a lot of people are involved in barter and many people are unbanked, et cetera, I could easily see even governments getting involved in distributing government disbursements via digital currencies uh, to people who have some kind of digital currency wallet. They don't have a bank, but that digital currency wallet becomes their entry point, their on-ramp into the mainstream financial systems. And in those, that situation, I see a really valid use case for potentially lifting a lot of people who are not included in the mainstream financial systems into those systems via a, a central bank digital currency. I have a, a, an offbeat question for you that drawn from a personal interest of, of mine in quantum computing. Do you think from what, what you know, from what your uh, colleagues tell you that digital payment systems, including uh, cryptocurrencies will be vulnerable uh, as quantum computers arrive with this enormous uh, computational power, it's said capable of shredding encryption of any kind, including in your payment system, including in, in a cryptocurrency. Well, for as long as technology has been around, unfortunately, the, the bad guys have as much access to it as the good guys. And uh, throughout time, I think we've all had to make sure that we do everything we can to uh, run ahead, the good guys, that is, run ahead of, of the bad guys. You know, I've heard the, the same thing. I had heard the same thing about, uh, you know, computers. You know, I was a major in computer information science too many years ago. And all through my life, I've heard about as computing power increases, it's going to make uh, us all vulnerable to the, the bad guys using that same technology. And it's commonly said about quantum computing, that quantum, quantum computing is going to cause uh, issues. Well, there's a, there's a lot of smart people who work for good companies. And uh, yet, yet, will we have to evolve how we protect data, how we protect technology, how we protect access to systems? Yes, we're going to have to evolve it. Will we have to invest to do that? Absolutely, we'll have to invest to do it. But can, can we figure out how to use quantum computing uh, for the good? And can we try to build infrastructure to protect it from the bad? I, I'm, I'm confident that uh, with the intelligence and in in all of the communities of good around the world that, that we'll be able to do it. But there's no question that as you move to a new era of technology, uh, you're going to have to uh, be conscious of that. And the same, you know, people say the same thing about artificial intelligence, right? It could be used for good or it could be used for for uh, not so good. And, uh, uh, you know, at least through all time, for the most part, good wins out over bad, but every once in a while, the, the bad guys do get in, in access and we have to do everything we can to prevent it. I never say no, David, to an investment that my cybersecurity folks ask me for. And we have about 850 employees who come to work every day and only do cybersecurity. Wow. That's, that's a measure of the, the seriousness of that threat. So another question about the future. There are an awful lot more people in the world who have cell phones than have bank accounts, I'm guessing. And when you think about the future of payment systems, movement of 
of money. Uh, you have to think about those networks. I'm curious about how Visa is planning to build out its business into this cellular telephone-driven uh, ecosystem that is the, the world's financial system of the future, maybe. You know, it's very interesting. Interestingly enough, some of these emerging markets are going to skip a, a, an era of payments, which is the, the physical credential, and go straight to straight to digital. Next week, I, I actually just completed a virtual trip to Asia the last three days. And next week, I'm doing a virtual trip for three days to Africa. And one of the things we're doing in Africa is partnering a lot with telecom companies because they're the ones who have the front door to uh, the consumer in Africa. And that, that phone, as you said, is, uh, is the, the, the powerful vehicle, the platform from which uh, payments and money movement can, uh, can happen. So uh, it's, a, it's a very it's total reality around the world that in, in many emerging markets, that's the way people will get into the financial system. That's the way people will pay. That's the way people will move money. And uh, so we're increasingly looking at a, a wider array of partners in the ecosystem in which we operate to uh, work with us. So uh, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Uh, Al Kelly, thank you for a, a really extraordinary a tour of the world of Visa and the future of, of money. Uh, I think we all learned a lot. Thanks for joining us. Well, David, great to be with you. Thank you so much. So uh, thanks to everyone for watching. Uh, to check out what interviews we have coming uh, up on Washington Post Live, head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register for our programming. We hope we'll see you uh, soon. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.